check, check. Okay, cool. If you guys have a Bible with you, um, please open them, as you might expect. You have to, yeah, anyway. Um, To John, we are starting a a new sermon series. We're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to start in verses 6 through 8 and then go on uh, to 19 through 27. Now, the reason that we're in John is John, uh, the the reason we're starting with text is because we're going to look at John the Baptist, the final prophet of Israel, and who he expected the Messiah to be. It's kind of like, um, you know, there's a, there's a reason all four Gospels start the ministry of Jesus with the witness of John the Baptist. Um, back in, this mic is kind of dicey, huh? All right, switch it out. Backup mic is always here. How's that? Oh, yeah. Silky smooth. Um, so back in 1988, um, nobody had heard of Jay-Z, the rapper. But kind of everybody in the hip-hop world had heard of a guy named Big Daddy Kane. Big Daddy Kane was massive at the time. And if you go back and look, Big Daddy Kane is the one who really brought Jay-Z along and put him on albums and stuff like that and and prepared the way, right? And and so people got to know Jay-Z because they knew Big Daddy Kane. In the same way... The gospel writers, oh, that's kind of funny. In the same way, the gospel writers are using the name of John the Baptist because at the time, John the Baptist was far better known than Jesus when people were hearing these gospels. But instead of preparing the way for the God MC, he was preparing the way for God himself. Ooh, oh, that was awesome. I can't believe I pulled that one off. (laughs) Guys. Oh, don't encourage me. It makes it worse. So so we're going to start in in chapter 1 here, verses 6 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, the text will be on the screen. Um, We're going to look at 6 through 8, and then we'll pick up the rest of the text later. Hear the word of God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Please pray with me. God, let us see the light. Let us hear the witness about Jesus Christ through the eyes of this prophet that you sent. I pray that this Christmas season you would, you would wake us up more spiritually, that we would understand on an ever deeper level the depth and preciousness of your gift to us in Jesus. Amen. You know, when you need a savior is when you're out of options, right? That's when you really need someone to save you. A few years ago, we had a weather event in Denver called the Bomb Cyclone. Those of you who are new to Denver this year, (laughs) a bomb cyclone is like a snowstorm, but it's the bomb. Right? It's the bomb cyclone. And it is just high winds and tons and tons of snow. And I, it was like a Wednesday, and I was like, oh, I'm going to the office today for sure. It's going to be quiet at the time I shared an office with some very chatty people. So I relished the opportunity to have some quiet in the office. And it was everything I could have dreamed it could be. I was by myself in there just cranking out work. The snow was falling. The wind was howling. It looked so cold out there. I was cozy inside. 
I, this might be TMI, I tend to get very hot feet. So I had taken my shoes off and was just sitting there, socky-footed. And it was, it, was, it was a terrific day. And I said to myself, self, you know, there's a, there's a, um, a sparkling water tap downstairs. Perhaps we should go get some. I said, that's likely. We should. Right? And so I was like, I didn't, I'm not even putting my shoes back on here because there's no one in this whole office except me. And so uh, as I'm getting up, like, I see one of the, the electrical wires blow, blue sparks. I was like, that's cool. Bonus entertainment. And, and I start going down the hall, and I'm like, I'm just dancing and singing on my way to get sparkling water, you know. I'm like Tom Cruise in Risky Business, just sliding on my socks through this building. And I go and get my water, and I'm, I'm headed back up, and there's a hallway, you know, to the office area that I, I work in. And um, I took my, my little pass, because it's one of those keypad doors, and I was like, it's going to go boop, but it didn't go boop. It just did nothing. I was like, well, maybe it's just open. No, it's locked. And I looked around the building for someone who was working that day, and nobody did because there's a bomb cyclone, and it's really unsafe to be out. I said, that's okay. Uh, my, my computer's locked in the office, but I'll just get in my car and drive home. Except that in my enthusiasm for being free, I was on a pocket diet, too. I left my keys in the office. I said, well, that's okay. I'll call Sharon. She can come pick me up. But then I remembered that my phone was also in that locked office. And I said, well, you know, I only live like a little under a mile. It's two feet of snow out. I'll survive. I'll be fine. Only I remembered that I was wearing socks only and I had no jacket. I was out of options. I had no idea how I was going to get home, and I thought I was going to have to stay the night in this co-working space I work in. I needed a savior. When we find ourselves out of options, when we've tried everything and it does not work, we become aware of our need for a savior. If there's one thing the human race agrees on, it's that we need some saving. Every single society is, is aware. Uh, like, we, we live in an odd, stable-ish time, but every society is on the edge of war or pandemic or collapse or, or what have you. And something that you see in, in every society through history is a longing for someone who is going to deliver them from these very catastrophes that wait at the door at all times. Even in stable-ish, right, we live in an odd time since the Second World War where, where we're not really afraid of foreign attack at this point or anything like that, but as the pandemic has taught us, things change. Things change quick. Even in good times, though, there's crime, there's inequality, there's oppression, there's a number of things happening that people are crying out for someone to save them from. And it's not just true on a societal level. It's true on a personal level. Every single one of us, in quiet moments, we know that we are, at some level, dissatisfied with our lives, dissatisfied with ourselves. There's always that feeling of something that you haven't quite got yet. 
something that's just missing, meaning, or purpose, or satisfaction, or contentment. Maybe you've made an outright mess of your life. And you're looking around at the considerable problems, the, the debts, the broken relationships, the failures and whatnot, and you're saying, I am out of options here, and what I need is someone to save me. Even more so, the scriptures tell us cover to cover that every human being needs a savior spiritually. That each and every one of us, as we stand before God, not one of us merits eternal life. Not one of us deserves it. We deserve the exact opposite. And we're unable to save ourselves. And we look to so many terrible things. <laughs> we look to other people to save us. We look to comfort to save us. And the worst savior of all, we look to ourselves to save us. Sometimes that's even like the punchline of a movie. Oh, I could save myself all along. It does not work in real life. When you're out of options, you're out of options, both on a social level, a personal level, and spiritual. We need a savior. And this, this longing, this need for a savior, it resounds and repeats through all the pages of history, through every and the, the, the first century uh, Jewish society to which this text comes, they were waiting for a savior too. When we, when we look at, first, at John chapter 1, verse 19, we see the testimony of John begin. It says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now, why are they going to ask him who he was? You have to understand, John the Baptist at this, the wilderness a warning sign for, for most of the Jewish leaders that he's not in Jerusalem. Usually that means a rebellion is starting. And he has a big following. Okay, he, he was what they would have called a reform prophet, a prophet who comes along and calls people back to God. So they've come to find out who he was. And they ask him a question to which he answers, verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Now, what are they asking? What are they, does it say Christ up there? Christ is Greek for Messiah, right? So don't get twisted on that. Messiah, Christ, same thing, all right? So what are they asking him? They're asking him, are you the Messiah? Well, if you don't know the history behind it, it's a question that doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. What is the Messiah? And why did they think that, this, that John the Baptist might be him? Well, in, in the year 586 BC, the Jewish nation ended. If you could somehow imagine what it would be like to be one of the people left after the end of the world, that's what they were living through. The Babylonians came, destroyed their nation, destroyed their city, burned the temple of God down, killed a lot of the population, and took the rest to Babylon, leaving just a handful of people to farm in what was their homeland. Their covenant with God, their relationship with God was ended. The world ended for them. And during this time of what's called the exile, prophets started rising up. If you ever look in the Bible, you see all these prophets, the vast majority of them are prophets just before or just after the exile, and they start prophesying 
not just judgment, but like the prophecies we read earlier of comfort, comfort to my people. They start prophesying a return from exile, a restoration of the covenant, and most of all, that the exile would be truly over when an anointed one comes. Anointed in, uh, anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah. You hear how that becomes Messiah, right? There was this prophecy of the Messiah who would end the exile, who would undo all the damage done, who would make the people, uh, you know, God and his people together again in the temple. And they had made some progress. They had come back to the land. They had rebuilt a new temple, but there was still no king, no, 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 no anointed king of the line of David. And they were waiting for him. Now, these Jerusalem leaders probably were not excited that there was somebody who could be thought to be the Messiah. Because right around the time of Jesus, there had been a couple of people who said, I'm the Messiah. And they had started a rebellion, and the Romans came in and crushed them brutally, and the people end up oppressed, uh, more oppressed than they were before. So they come out to John, and they say, are you him? Are you one of these guys that's going to cause trouble for the people? And he tells them, remember, this is, the, this is the first testimony we get about who the Messiah is. And what does John say that they need to know and we need to know? It's not him. You know what the first thing we need to know about the Savior? Is that we're not. Why does that matter? Why do we need to know that we are not the Savior? Well, if, if, if you ever walk into a gym and you see a, a squat rack with a barbell that's loaded up with 700 pounds, I know two things immediately. One is that that's not for me. <laughs> that is not set up for me. I do not have a 700-pound squat, nor do I think any of you do. Maybe Carolyn Kunicki. She's strong, dude. <laughs> the second thing I know is that if I try to lift it, I will break. Okay, taking the mantle of Savior on yourself. One, it's not for you. Two, you'll break. We try so often to be the Savior. Savior for ourselves. I'm going to get my life in order. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to tweak this about my life. I'm going to get it together. I'm going to be my own Savior. You will break. You see a friend struggling with addiction. You see them struggling in a relationship. You see them struggling with depression. You so badly want to just intervene and save them. But you know what? If you try and be their savior, you're doing something that's not meant for you, and you will break. Parents, you want to save your kids. You want to save them from every pain. You want to save them from, from anything that could possibly happen. But guess what? If you attempt to do so, you're taking on a role not meant for you, and you will break. Teachers, oh, our teachers. <laughs> our teachers, our governors, our people who care for others as their job. It's a good thing that you're doing. There's a real danger that you will try and become someone else's savior. It is not a job meant for you. You can't do it. You will break if you attempt it. The first thing we need to know about our Savior, John tells us, is that we're not him. Now, that's not our fault, right? 
There, there's, there's a limitation to human saviors. Do you guys know the story of Hanukkah? We're, we, just, we just hit Hanukkah, the, the Hanukkah season. Some of you might know it, but I'll tell you the story of Hanukkah real quick. Okay, so this gets a little complicated at the beginning. The Jewish people before the Romans were living under the Seleucids. Okay, they were, they were kind of what's left of, of Alexander, who some called the Great's Empire. Okay? And the, this king took the throne named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, right? Yeah, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And he had a big idea. He said, you know, Alexander, who I kind of trace myself back to, he had a big idea. He wanted to unite the world by conquering it and making them all speak Greek and be Greek, right? That's how the unity would come, just smash everybody else's culture. And he's like, I rule Judea. I'm going to do that to the Jews. They don't speak Greek and they don't observe Greek customs. So he, he set up a gymnasium next to the temple of God. Okay, now that might not sound so bad. People are just getting exercises. But in order to enter a gymnasium, you had to be nude. And this was very against Jewish law. But they forced the people to do it. And they would throw feasts and force them to eat pig, again, again against the law. And, he, and, and, and Antiochus was like, well, this is super successful. I'm, uh, you know, let's outlaw speaking Hebrew and Aramaic. Let's make them speak Greek. Let's, let's outlaw the Sabbath day. Let's outlaw even calling oneself a Jew. And he went so far that he converted the temple to God into a temple to Jupiter, complete with temple prostitution and the whole nine. That's what the temple of God was being used for. And then he sent out officers to the villages to make them do all this same stuff. And he came to one village, uh, Modi'in. Anybody check me on that? It was Modi. Anyway, it was the village of Modi'in. And this officer from, from Antiochus gets all the people together. And he says, all right, you guys are going to have to make sacrifices to, to one of these pagan gods. And, and there was this, this priest in the town who had like five or six sons. His name was Matthias. And he went to Matthias and he said, look, you're going to go first. You're, you're one of the most respected people here. And if you make this sacrifice, you're going to have friendship with the king, silver and gold. It's going to be great. Matthias refuses. And another guy goes up and says, Matthias, I'll offer the sacrifice for you. And when Matthias saw this, he just lost his everything, right? He, he, went, he goes berserk. He kills the guy that's about to make the sacrifice. He kills the officer. He takes the altar. Woo, tag, just boom, on the ground with it. And he calls out to all the people. He says, anybody who wants to follow God and be faithful, follow me. And he started an uprising. And he and all his sons, they, 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 they got an army together. And they beat every army that they sent against him. And then, and then they, they were done messing around. And they were like, well, we're going to smash this rebellion. And they send an army that outnumbered Matthias and his sons. One of them was named Judas, who was a good commander. And they outnumbered them five to one. And they had the best commander they had. And Judas Maccabee, this is the story of the Maccabees, if you didn't know, he smashed that Seleucid army. And then he went and he liberated Jerusalem. And he tore down the idols in the temple and they rededicated the temple. And that's, that's, the, that's what Hanukkah is celebrating. And a lot of people at the time said, could this be? Could this be the one that ends the exile? Could this be the Messiah? You know, pretty good candidate, wouldn't you say? He saved 
his people accept that. After just a few years, this new dynasty became just as corrupt as any before it. They were worshiping pagan idols. And they invited, they, it was so unstable and chaotic there that they invited in the Romans to conquer them. That's a pretty typical story of human saviors. Starts out great, looks so hopeful, looks so promising, but it doesn't ever deliver what it says it's going to deliver. Things just don't seem to stay saved when humans do the saving. And there are lots of people throughout world history and in our day and age that are offering to be our saviors. I alone can fix it. Remember that one? There were people in 2008 calling President Obama the Obama-Saya. Right? There are people now who are promising that if we just disrupt the power discourse, we'll all be equal and saved. And if we shred the patriarchy and defund this and that, all crime and everything will go away and we'll all be saved. It's not going to work. There's a reason they don't work. It's because no human being can do God's job. The second thing that we're going to see about the coming Savior is that he is God. God is our Savior. Look with me at verse 23. It says, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Did you see that? He just called Jesus God. Wait, where did we see that? All right. So he quotes Isaiah 40. They, they, they ask him, they ask him, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. They say, who are you then? He says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. The passage we read earlier. Now, this is going to take a little bit of, of attention paying. But I brought a little slide for you that's going to be sidelong Hebrew and English. I'll show you. Okay? All right. So this is Isaiah 40 in English. A voice cries. There, here it is in Hebrew. A voice is crying in Midbar in the wilderness. Prepare the way. This word, Yehava. That's not Adonai for Lord. That is the personal name of God, Yahweh. Okay? So who's coming in Isaiah 40? Who's the, who is the voice preparing the way for? God himself. They ask John, who are you? I am the voice preparing the way for the Savior who is God himself. Y'all see that? kind of silly when people say that the scriptures don't say Jesus is God. This is a pretty clear example. This is saying Jesus is Yahweh. Right? The reason none of these saviors can save is because they're not God. God is our savior. And this raises an important question for a lot of us is if God is our savior, then why isn't he saving? It seems like God isn't that concerned with what's going on on earth. There's a, I'm allowed poetry once a quarter. There's an old poem by a guy named William Blake. It's called Tenobadaddy. It says, why art thou silent and invisible, father of jealousy? Why dost thou hide thyself in clouds from every searching eye? Why darkness and obscurity in all thy words and laws that none dare eat the fruit but from the wily serpent's jaws? 
Or is it because secrecy gains females loud applause? Yeah, dig at women at the end. But his point is, his point is that, you know, nobody daddy, nobody's daddy is, is the idea there. He's saying, yeah, there's a God, doesn't seem super concerned with what's going on with us here. God stays safe in heaven while we catch hell. God doesn't seem too interested in saving us from a pandemic or a war or a genocide or to save us when we're experiencing grief and loss and loneliness and failure. Where is God then? The next thing we need to know about our Savior we see in verse 24. It says, Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? He said, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So not only does he say that the Savior is God, but that what? He's coming. He stands among you. What does Isaiah 40 say? It says, comfort my people. Why? Prepare the way because God is coming to us. When we think about the amazing truth that our God cared so much about the brokenness of the world that he crosses worlds, that he enters in, Think real quick. Jesus is God, and what did he go through? What did he bear? He bore loneliness like you and I will never know. He bore rejection. He bore betrayal. He was born into oppression and poverty. He suffered. He died. When, when, when we think of God as detached from the world, look at what God did. Look at the significance of what the incarnation means, that God comes to us. He enters in to the very suffering that we accuse him of not caring about. He cares so much that he took it upon himself. You don't have a God that doesn't know in your corner. You have a God who knows all too well what it is to be oppressed, to be poor, to be alone, to have your body broken, to face death. But not only that, he enters in to save. The charge against God that he hasn't done anything, right? That, that he's unconcerned with the brokenness of the world, that's nonsense. Look at the lengths he went to to bring us salvation. Jesus doesn't just come and say, I'll suffer. But he comes in and shows us the truth about God. How much more do we know God because we have a record of the life of Jesus, God walking around in human form, right? We know God more because of Jesus. And not only that, he brought with him the wholeness of the kingdom. Those miracles he did, raising people from death, healing people, making food, food you know, where there was none, those aren't parlor tricks. Those are announcements of what's coming. This is the salvation. This is the kingdom that's coming. Plenty, not poverty. Wholeness, not sickness. Right? You, you see that? And, and then what does he do? 
He who knew no sin became sin on the cross for you and me, who succumbed to death and then rises again to guarantee us eternal life. Our God enters in. John wants us to know about the Savior. You're not him. <laughs> but our Savior is God and that our God enters in. What do we need to do? We need to look to Jesus for salvation. We need to look to Jesus for salvation. What saviors are we actually looking to? Because we all look to them. You may not realize it. What do you turn to for comfort? You've had a hard day. You're stressed out. Perhaps you are grieving loss. Where do you go for comfort? Is it food? Is it shopping online for six hours? Is it numbing out? Is it a substance? These are functional saviors, things we turn to for comfort. Where do we turn for hope? When the world has you down, right? When you are staring in the face, your own mortality or the mortality of others or the brokenness of the world is brought home to you with grim, stark reality. Where do you turn? That's a functional savior. A lot of us turn to candidates, political candidates, right? I know that there was part of me that's like, well, if we just get the right guy elected, the pandemic will go away, economic problems will go away, the racial problems will be solved, everything will be great. We need a political... It didn't work. <laughs> a lot of us turn to gurus, especially the online variety these days. You know, influencer, tell me how to live, give me hope. I'm looking for meaning. I'm looking for hope here. Give it to me, please. Show me the way. Where are we turning for meaning? Like, what is going to make your life count? You know what for most of us it is? The next thing. That's what. We are, <laughs> we are such donkeys chasing carrots with this particular one. What's going to make your life count? We're like, well, I'll, you young people are like, well, I will, I'll make a hit in my career. And then when, here's the thing, you, you're going you're gonna to get to that. And you're going to say, well, that didn't quite work. Well, but maybe I need to change careers, right? And that's going to be my significance. I'm just in the wrong career. It's not the level of achievement, but, you know, oh, that didn't work either. Well, true love, if I could, all the movies tell me, if I find true love, I'm going to feel filled up, significant, and whole for the, for the, rest, of my, for the rest of my life. And that doesn't work. Oh, I better try somebody else. This didn't work. Guys, you're going to spend your whole life chasing the next carrot. And I'm addressing particularly the people in this congregation. It's a lot of smart people. It's a lot of hardworking people. If you truly bend your mind to getting any of those things, you will get it. And it will be the most horrible disappointment of your life you're going to find out that the thing that you were looking to to make you the thing you were looking to to make you count to make you matter to make you satisfied is not going to work where do we turn for our standing with god 
This is another way that you see functional saviors. If, if you conceive of God as loving it when you are just performing well morally and you're doing devotions, you're like, oh, God's very pleased with me. You know what savior you're looking to is yourself. This Christmas, let's look to Jesus, our true savior for salvation. When I was at the office and I was stuck and I was out of options, the only thing I could think to do was see if there was anybody else in the building. And I found like one guy tucked in a corner. And I was like, dude, dude. And he came out and he let me use his phone and, and I called Sharon, my wife. And I, I she, of course she didn't pick up, strange number. And, and I just left this pitiful message. I was like, Sharon, the power's out. I'm locked out of my office. My keys are in there and my phone and my shoes. <laughs> I can't get home. If you get this, I'll be waiting. And all I could do was go to the front door and look and wait and watch. And, you know, the snow was just pounding down, and I would see a car go past. I was coming. I'm like, headlights. And it would go past, and like when another one comes, and it kind of slows down and goes past. But then... Another car came, and I saw the headlights, and that went past, too. <laughs> but then a car turns in the parking lot. Now, I can only see headlights at this point, but it gets closer and closer, and it's our van. It's our minivan. I was like, <gasps> and then Sharon gets out, and she's holding boots and a coat for me. I was like, yes, my Savior has come. Right? We're all in need of a savior. We cannot give our own lives meaning. We cannot give ourselves hope. We need a place to turn for comfort when we experience the pain of the world. And most of all, we need to be right with God. Jesus is that savior. This Christmas, let's look to him for salvation. Pray with me. Jesus, I pray that you would show us our salvation, that you would impress on us the depth, to, the depth of the salvation that you've provided, that it is, it is salvation from eternal death, that it is salvation from meaninglessness and hopelessness. And I pray, God, that, that you would strengthen our weak faith and we would grab onto our Savior anew this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.